Welcome to Season 4 of Anesthesiology News Presents The Etherist, an investigative podcast series focused on exploring timely and important issues in anesthesiology. This year, we're going to examine a topic that's both spoken about not enough and too much, physician well-being. And since we know that many of you are frankly burned out from talking about burnout, please skip your mindfulness seminar and tune in and maybe even find your happy place in the process. In the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, anesthesiologists are being asked to do more than ever with less. Staffing shortages, supply chain issues, administrative burdens, regulatory compliance, and unpredictable work hours continue to plague the field and contribute to burnout. This is a universal problem and these are symptoms of a work environment that is not conducive to sustainability. Although burnout has historically been defined in several different ways, the term is generally characterized by three distinct components. Emotional exhaustion, feelings of being overextended and depleted, depersonalization, having cynical and detached attitudes towards one's work, and reduced feelings of personal accomplishment involving a negative self-evaluation of one's own effectiveness and worth. So what are the main causes of burnout and how can physicians foster a greater sense of well-being? Unfortunately, like any complex problem, there is no single solution. It's a multifactorial condition that's rooted in everything from schedules to culture. Anesthesiologists are often treated more like cogs in a wheel than professionals on which the system depends. And that's what it's mostly about, right? Simply wanting to feel valued, to be acknowledged as essential rather than expendable. Nevertheless, there's no scarcity of areas that require change. Do you curse the existence of the electronic health record? If you do, you are not alone. What is basically a billing system, one not designed by physicians, was forced on physicians with virtually no input from physicians. It changed the way that anesthesiologists worked, it changed how they thought, and it changed how they interacted with patients. Additionally, in the push for volume-based care over value-based care, anesthesiologists are often asked to manage not one, not two, but three and even four ORs simultaneously. The expectation to simply get everything done and as fast as possible further cultivates the sense of depersonalization. It's no longer Mr. Pizzy undergoing a total knee replacement, it's just another knee replacement. There's an undeniable yet indefinable loss of personal achievement without that vital patient connection. Deprived of actually getting to know your patients, a profession that you once loved and maybe even felt a calling to can slowly erode to feeling like a series of tedious tasks. And without any say, in what time a surgery begins or how long it goes on, the inability to dependably plan one's personal time and achieve a sustainable work-life balance only further highlights two recurring stresses, lack of control and a feeling of being marginalized. From institutional to legislative reform, there are countless opinions on how to stabilize the specialty's turmoil. Yet the one prevailing sentiment is that if there isn't significant change in healthcare, 
as well as the way that anesthesiologists are viewed and treated, then the mass exodus will not only continue, but even accelerate. So what can you do personally? Is the touted yoga and meditation combo the true salvation? For those listening to this right now, from medical school onward, did anyone actually teach you how to take care of yourself? Walk you through the key elements for self-care and self-preservation? The focus is solely on taking care of patients, which is obviously critical. But as a former AMA president once said, the most important patient we really have to take care of is the one in the mirror. Join us as we speak with leaders in the physician well-being movement and learn from their unique perspectives on achieving work-life balance and personal fulfillment. In this first episode, we feature a true rock star, Amy Vincent, who among many other things, is the chair of the American Society of Anesthesiologists Committee on Physician Wellbeing. But first, a word from our sponsor. Discover breakthrough technology with Massimo Rainbow Pulse Co-Oximetry, featuring SPHB non-invasive continuous hemoglobin monitoring and PVI, a non-invasive dynamic indicator of fluid responsiveness. The Rainbow Pulse Co-Oximetry platform is designed to help support blood and fluid management initiatives without additional equipment or setup. Visit Massimo.com to learn more. My name is Amy Vinson. I'm a pediatrician anesthesiologist and practice as a pediatric anesthesiologist at Boston Children's Hospital, uh, which is affiliated with Harvard Med. I am the chief wellness officer for the Department of Anesthesiology and Critical Care and Pain Medicine at Boston Children's Hospital. I've also been the chair of the American Society of Anesthesiologists Committee on Physician Wellbeing for the last few years and prior to that had leadership roles with the working group on well-being and task force on well-being and had all sorts of different names. My interest in well-being started when I was doing my second residency in anesthesiology. Uh, I initially did a residency in pediatrics and then transitioned to a second residency. And that was where I noticed the differences both in the types of stress anesthesiologists were exposed to, the differences in inherent peer support based on how our work life and workflow is structured and how that impacted people. Um, It's a very isolating job compared to other areas of medicine. We're often physically isolated uh, with the patient behind drapes, but we're also doing a lot of work that is uh, not directly a team sport the way it is in things like internal medicine or pediatrics or any other rounding floor-based model of of medicine. We certainly work in a team-based structure with our our nurse anesthetists or in some states anesthesia assistants and and trainees and and all that. And that is definitely a team sport. It's definitely a team sport in the OR, but we often will take the impact of our perioperative events very personally and very um, singularly. And so that's how I got into the um, area of well-being and realized that something needs to be done. In terms of why well-being is important, right now, frankly, it's an issue of sustainability of the workforce. 
medicine is a stressful job, whether it's being a physician, being a nurse, being a nurse anesthetist, being whatever. Um, medicine is a really stressful job. It always has been. You are taking responsibility for the lives and well-being of other people, and you're putting on that on yourselves, and you're using your training and your expertise and your hard work to try to help people. Uh, when that doesn't go well, that is painful. Uh, when it does go well, it's often still very stressful and hard work. So it's nothing new that that medicine is stressful, that medicine impacts who we are as people and our lives, both inside and outside of work and our health and our well-being. But I think the last few years, few decades, um, there have been a lot of changes in medicine that have both eroded the sanctity of that physician-patient relationship, but have gotten in between it as well, meaning there are barriers up that allow people to really just focus on the patient. I mean, you know, we're in anesthesia, and so we're very hands-on with patients, but you, know, you look at a lot of the jobs that are office-based or clinic-based, and for every hour they spend with the patient, they're, they're documenting two hours of that. And so that activity of being with your patient and touching your patient and, and helping your patient that's so sustaining and resilience building has been, for lack of a better word, violated um, by regulatory compliance and requirements and documentation burden and administrative burden and all these things that were probably put in place for good intentions, but have had the downstream effect of really just tiring out the workforce and demoralizing the workforce. With the advent of COVID, we have both had the opportunity to see things in a new way and do things in a new way, added to new job stressors being added. And now because of that, and because of sort of an open-mindedness that people have, a lot of people are actually leaving the workforce because they're realizing this is just not what I went into it for which is leading to staffing shortages. This is not just true with physicians. This is extremely true for nursing and every other area of healthcare and every other sector. And it's leaving the people who've decided to stay even more strapped and working even harder. And, and I fear that we're at a point where if we don't do something soon in a major way, we are going to lose large chunks of the workforce and it's going to take decades to rebuild. So I think well-being is an imperative right now. So how do you define wellness? And is burnout different for everyone? Or are there some general themes? So the first thing is I don't tend to use the word wellness. Wellness tends to do with how you are physically and emotionally within your own self. Well-being, and I know it sounds like semantics, and I don't like to harp on semantics, but well-being has to do with how you're also interacting with your work environment. And so when we use the term well-being, it is your physical, emotional, occupational, professional sense of how you're doing. So good well-being is a positive perception of how you are feeling professionally, how you're feeling physically, psychologically, spiritually, emotionally. And by that little shift going from wellness to well-being, what we incorporate in is the idea that your work environment is critical to your sense of how you are feeling. Um, and it brings that entire domain into play in terms of the responsibility and the accountability to make things better. So if we're talking about well-being, 
we are saying that you could take the most resilient, um, attentive to their own needs, responsible, healthy living person, put them in a toxic work environment, and they will not be healthy anymore. That's why it's important to talk about well-being instead of wellness. So basically what we're saying is, by saying well-being, we're bringing your work environment into the fold. When did the notion of physician well-being come to light? Is it a new focus or has it been around for some time? So I think that ebbs and flows. I think it has always been known within the medical community and medicine in general has has taken um, some interesting journeys through history. Um, But even if you look at the father of modern medical education, Sir William Osler, in 1900, he was speaking to a group of medical students. And I love this quote. He said, begin at once the cultivation of something other than the purely professional. So he was talking about work like then, but he also said, um, I'm trying to get this quote right, in no relationship is the physician more often derelict than in his duty to himself. And so it's this idea of self-sacrifice in medical culture that is glorified to the point where the self-sacrifice almost becomes performative um, or competitive. And the things that we say strong work for are often for things that from an occupational health standpoint are utterly inappropriate. They, in that moment, are necessary to help the patient. And so we celebrate that. But the fact that we were ever put in that position, whatever it was, whatever the example was, is probably inappropriate. And one of those things we need to improve from a system standpoint, you know, like strong work. You stayed up for 47 hours straight and took care of those patients, right? Like that was strong work. That was really amazing. And and, and you should be lauded for that, but you should never be asked to be in that position. So when did we start like really paying attention to it was, I would say, in recent history, when Tate Shanafeld published his first major study of burnout in U.S. physicians, and that was in 2012. And I think the reason why, if I'm being honest, it caught everyone's attention and really um, allowed us to gain traction is that the lay press got hold of it. And it kind of made medicine look bad that, okay, here we are, half of the physician workforce has a major symptom of burnout. And for someone like me who was studying this stuff before that paper, I loved it because it gave big data credence to what we were doing. Um, and it justified a lot of what we were doing and gave us more traction. And, and I know that was true of a lot of people doing similar work throughout the country. And so after that paper came out for the first, oh, I don't know, five, six, seven years, almost all of the papers coming out were the people who were doing work in little niche areas throughout the country um, in well-being. Things like mindfulness, meditation, yoga, peer support even. And, and these are all really, really good things. Um, but they tend to kind of heap the onus on the individual instead of the system. And as that was happening, those groups of people were starting to organize with one another and create collaboratives or committees or what have you in whichever construct they were meeting in. And they were starting to really coalesce around this idea that this is a systemic problem. This is a symptom of a work environment that's not conducive to sustainability. And 
what you saw was that in around 2018 or so, you started to get a lot more national organizations, societies, state medical societies, and even some more national groups like the National Academy of Medicine start working together to figure out, okay, what do we need to change about our work environment and the culture of medicine to get the downstream effect of less burnout, less suicidality, less loss of workforce, essentially. Um, and I think that's where we're at now. And and most people I know in the well-being world are very happy about that change in focus. But it also leaves us with a little bit of a PR problem in trying to convince the people who aren't, you know, studying well-being, who are just out there doing a very good job doing their jobs, that this is our focus, that we are not blaming them for being burned out, that we're not putting the onus on them to fix their burnout. They know what the problem is. We know what the problem is. But I think for so long, it's been so convenient to kind of check the box of wellness by offering yoga sessions and, and that sort of thing. And so I think we've got a little bit of work before us to kind of shift that perception that people who do well-being work want you to yoga your way out of being burned out. Breakthrough Technology, Breakthrough Outcomes, a key study conducted at CHU Limoges Hospital in France demonstrated the value of implementing a hospital-wide goal-directed therapy protocol for blood and fluid management using the Massimo Rainbow post-coaximetry platform, showing a 33% reduction in 30-day post-surgical mortality. Visit Massimo.com to learn more. With burnout being the symptom of a systemic problem, what are some of the things that should be addressed at an institutional or even broader level? You know, I, I've had days where I've got two busy rooms and I feel like all I did that day was paperwork because that's most of what I did all day. And, and I'm nothing special in that. Like, we've all experienced that. So I think that's part of the reason why those of us who have been in the well-being field and who've really approached it pragmatically have realized from the beginning that this was an organizational and systems issue as well as a cultural issue in medicine in terms of what's acceptable, how we need to be organizing things, what we need to be changing at this point. And it's also the reason why I'm so encouraged by the work of groups like the National Academy of Medicine, which, you know, I have been honored to be the ASA's representative to, or I, I should say I represent the ASA at the National Academy of Medicine's Collaborative on Clinician Wellbeing and Resilience. I think that's the entire name of it. But, but recently they have released the, the national plan and what it predominantly focuses on is bringing those various stakeholders to the table. So EMR vendors and uh, regulatory bodies and insurance companies and all of these entities that have basically introduced administrative burdens to clinicians. I'm, I'm not saying that they've done that with ill intent. It's just happened. And rolling that back and trying to improve that has been one of the really tangible ways that we can improve the healthcare environment that we work in. You know, there's other aspects to, you know, looking at improving well-being from a systems approach. And, you know, things 
that are cultural, like decreasing the stigma associated with accessing mental health care in medicine. I mean, that's been a big issue for a long time. And it's always um, shocking when you hear about physician suicides or any clinician suicide. But, you know, physician suicide, you have someone of means who ostensibly could could access, you know, the best health care. Um, and, and so the idea that there's a reticence to accessing that because of the credentialing and licensure um, environments that we've created, that's an area we can make tangible improvements. So I know I went on a, a little journey answering that question, but, you know, one thing leads to another in this in this field. Um, Dr. Margulis and Dr. Sinsky and I speak a lot about how, you know, it's not just a lane, it's the whole highway. The, the well-being of your workforce is critical to the sustainability of your workforce. So clearly, the pressure should not be on a doctor to improve their own work-life balance. But is there anything they could do to help better their well-being? Do you have any advice or takeaways for someone listening to this podcast who might be struggling? Absolutely. While I say that the onus should be more on the systems than and the organizations than on the individual, it is our, I believe, our individual duty owed to our patients to be as well as possible. Um, and, and so it's important for us to guard our own well-being to the extent possible within our own work environments, right? A few things. Be very proactive about seeking peer support. If you need a battle buddy, establish a relationship with a colleague where you can go to each other for peer support. But as early as you can in your career, get really intentional about seeking peer support when you need to talk something through, when you need to debrief something. It's a really, really good habit to get in. The second thing would be insight. Know yourself. Um, Know what burnout is and when you're showing signs of it. Burnout's interesting. I mean, it's got a lot, it's got, you know, by standard definition, it's got three major domains, right? Emotional exhaustion, depersonalization or cynicism, and a low sense of personal accomplishment. Know yourself and and when you are starting to show your early warning signs, if you can recognize it earlier, you can often take intentional steps for some additional self-care that you wouldn't normally do. to maybe write that ship earlier, um, maybe plan out a vacation if you're able to take one, um, that sort of thing, and take a step back. The other thing is developing your own leadership style and, and leadership skills. One of the biggest drivers of burnout, one of the biggest associations with burnout, is how you perceive your direct report, your direct boss to be. Are they supportive of you? Do they involve you in decisions? Do they recognize you for a job well done? But the flip side of that is that we're all leaders to somebody and how we act as a leader impacts our own microculture in our own microenvironment, whether it's an OR or you have a leadership role or what have you. So intentionally building in really robust mechanisms to show appreciation to people, to build in gratitude, um, both for your own internal life, but for those around you um, can go a long way toward improving the culture of your own workplace. Those are a few things that can be done and everybody needs to understand what gives them resilience. Those aren't luxuries. 
those are necessities if you want a sustainable career. I go back to Osler. Begin at once the cultivation of something other than the purely professional. If it's working out, you have got to prioritize it. Um, maybe you can't do it every day, and we have busy lives, but giving it a high level of priority is not selfish. It's a necessity to a, a sustainable career, whether you like to garden or work out or paint or, I don't know, play Sudoku, whatever it is that genuinely fills you back up, it needs to be a priority. And, and sometimes that means saying no to stuff. And I think as a culture, we need to reinforce that more. And that's, that's the work of leaders in anesthesia is to reinforce that culture that it's okay to engage in those activities and to build in the time needed for a semblance of work-life balance in, in medicine. Um, we've had a really hard last few years. And I think just jumping back into the fray as if nothing just happened is not going to work. We could have the same level of work that we did in 2019, but here we are in 2022 and people's lives outside of work are more stressful because of everything that has been going on. And all those things that used to build them back up are not there anymore. So I think leaders in medicine need to recognize that even if your numbers look the same as they did in 2019, even if on paper, um, everything looks exactly the same. We were having issues in 2019 in medicine. We were having a lot of burnout in 2019. We weren't all perfect then. And now people are exhausted. And I think there needs to be a collective realization of that. It doesn't mean that the workforce is weak. The workforce is profoundly strong and resilient, but the workforce is tired. And I think the more we can be honest and upfront about that, the better we're going to be in the long run and the more we're going to be able to rebuild to something better going forward. Join us for the rest of the series as we continue to speak with an array of experts and explore this multifaceted conundrum. In episode two of Anesthesiology News Presents The Etherist, we delve deeper into defining just what burnout is how quickly it can creep up, the unexpected toll it can leave behind, and why being mindful of it and your well-being are paramount.